Welcome to the July 2nd, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll explore the impact of calreticulin, or CalR, haploinsufficiency on hematopoietic stem cell activity in the context of myeloproliferative neoplasms. Explore mechanisms of leukemogenesis related to the E2A PBX1 fusion protein in childhood B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And learn about the connection between intestinal microbiota, their metabolite short-chain fatty acids, and chronic graft-versus-host disease after allogeneic stem cell transplantation. First, we'll discuss the blood article entitled Calreticulin Haploinsufficiency Augments Stem Cell Activity and is Required for Onset of Myeloproliferative Neoplasms by Kotaro Scheid from the University of Miyazaki, Japan, and colleagues. Two key points of this study are that CalR deficiency induces reduction of erythropoiesis in the bone marrow and extramedullary hematopoiesis in the spleen, and that CalR haploinsufficiency restores the self-renewal capacity of hematopoietic stem cells damaged by CalR mutations and is required for the development of myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPNs. MPNs are acquired hematopoietic stem cell malignancies characterized by autonomous growth of one or more blood cell lineages. The three classic Philadelphia chromosome-negative MPNs include polycythemia vera, or PV, essential thrombocythemia, or ET, and primary myelofibrosis, or PMF. JAK2, the thrombopoietin receptor MPL, and CalR comprise the three primary mutational drivers in Philadelphia chromosome-negative MPNs. Their common thread is constitutive activation of the JAK-STAT signaling pathway. CalR mutations are found in 20 to 25% of patients with ET or PMF. Although many types of CalR mutations have been identified, the two most common are referred to as type 1, which is a 52 base pair deletion, and type 2, which is a 5 base pair insertion. All CalR mutations occur in exon 9 and result in a frame shift modification of the protein's carboxy terminus. Mutant CalR adopts a neofunction as a secreted rogue cytokine which binds to MPL, activating downstream proliferation pathways and megakaryopoiesis. CalR mutant mice develop ET, which is characterized by an increased number of platelets in the peripheral blood and megakaryocytes in the bone marrow. Wild-type CalR normally functions as a chaperone protein and is involved in multiple functions, including calcium homeostasis. However, the function of CalR in hematopoiesis is less well understood. CalR-deficient mice are embryonic lethal due to a defect in the cardiovascular wall precluding determination of an effect on hematopoiesis. The authors attempted to clarify the role of CalR function both in normal hematopoiesis and in MPN pathogenesis using hematopoietic system-specific CalR-deficient mice. Loss of one or both CalR alleles had little effect on blood cell counts. However, CalR deficiency showed some hematopoietic properties of MPN, 
including decreased erythropoiesis and increased myeloid progenitor cells in the bone marrow, as well as extramedullary hematopoiesis in the spleen and splenomegaly. In transplantation experiments, loss of one or both alleles increased bone marrow repopulation in primary recipients, but loss of a single allele could maintain this advantage in secondary transplants. This suggests that CalR haploinsufficiency yields a competitive advantage by promoting the self-renewal capacity of hematopoietic stem cells. The authors further demonstrated that in transplant recipients, a 52-base pair deleted CalR transgene can only drive an MPN phenotype, such as thrombocytosis, when CalR is haploinsufficient. In a transcriptome analysis comparing wild-type CalR versus CalR haploinsufficient stem progenitor cells, which also expressed the 52 base pair deleted CalR transgene, the authors demonstrated upregulation of E2F-related target genes. E2F is involved in positive cell cycle regulation, which may explain the observed growth advantage. They also noted upregulation of other stem cell self-renewal pathways and decreases in pathways responsive to the pro-inflammatory cytokines tumor necrosis factor alpha and interferon gamma. As noted by Daniel Prinz and Tony Green in the accompanying commentary, these data shed light on differences between humans who usually exhibit clonal disease and mouse models which show no or a slow-rising competitive advantage. As this competitive advantage requires loss of a normal CalR allele, they suggest that knock-in models of CalR mutant disease may better phenocopy human MPN. Other variables that need to be considered in modeling human disease include differences in the way murine versus human mutant CalR binds MPL, as well as the level of mutant CalR expression. Future research will help further dissect how CalR haploinsufficiency provides a competitive advantage to stem cells. Although increased cell cycling and self-renewal are contributory, this work does not identify a direct mechanism, and it is unclear whether this relates to one or more of the canonical functions of CalR, such as protein chaperoning or calcium signaling. Still, this report represents an advance in our understanding of mutant CalR-driven MPN and establishes a role for the loss of a wild-type CalR allele in disease pathogenesis. Next, let's examine data presented in the blood article entitled E2A PBX1 functions as a co-activator for RUNX1 in acute lymphoblastic leukemia by Win Chi Pai from the National Ying Ming University in Taiwan and colleagues. The 119 chromosome translocation is molecularly characterized by the E2A PBX1 oncogenic gene fusion and is found in 5% of childhood acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL. The disease has a five-year survival of almost 90%, although it is associated with an increased risk of CNS relapse. The basic helix-loop helix transcription factor, E2A, plays a crucial role in determining tissue-specific cell fate, including differentiation of B-cell lineages. While previous studies have demonstrated the oncogenicity of E2A fused to PBX1 in cell and animal models, 
The biology of E2A PBX1-mediated leukemogenesis has not been fully dissected. In this informative study, the authors used unbiased genomic profiling and biochemical assays to identify the targets of E2A PBX1. They show that, compared to normal E2A, the E2A PBX1 fusion oncoprotein preferentially binds to a subset of loci co-bound by RUNCS1 and also directly interacts with RUNCS1 itself. RUNCS1 is essential for normal hematopoiesis, is rearranged to create fusion transcription factors in AML and ALL, and is sporadically mutated in poor prognosis AML. Knockdown of E2A PBX1 by shRNAs directed against E2A and PBX1 led to decreased expression of 210 genes, 46 of which were also suppressed by depletion of RUNCS1. These genes included WNT16, a previously known target of E2A PBX1, and interestingly, RUNCS1, suggesting a positive feedback loop. Consistent with this, shRNA depletion of RUNCS1 dramatically decreased the transforming activity of the fusion. The investigators also found that E2A PBX1 can directly bind and activate genes relevant to B-cell transformation in a RUNCS1-independent manner. They identified over 1,200 E2A PBX1 binding sites that were not bound by RUNCS1 and over 160 genes activated by E2A PBX1 but not affected by RUNCS1, which were important for cell growth. These genes included LEF1, whose expression has been associated with worse outcomes in B-cell ALL, the Icarose transcription factor IKZF1, which is critical to B-cell development, the interleukin-7 receptor, and BMI1, a mediator of E2A PBX1 transformation. The fusion's PBX1 DNA binding domain has at least two functions. It directly binds and activates a specific set of genes, and it mediates interaction with RUNCS1. A point mutant that prevents binding to PBX1 sites can still stimulate growth and replating of murine hematopoietic progenitors, albeit at a reduced efficiency. As Jonathan Licht points out in his accompanying commentary, these data suggest that the full effects of the oncoprotein are mediated through a direct or RUNCS1-independent mechanism and indirectly in a cooperative manner with RUNCS1. In summary, the authors describe an underappreciated model of leukemogenesis, whereby E2A PBX1, through an interaction with RUNCS1, acts as transcriptional co-activator of RUNCS1-controlled genes, and, through an autoregulatory loop, sustains transcription of RUNCS1 target genes. These data provide a more generalizable model of transformation in which leukemogenic fusion proteins may be targeted to specific DNA sites through other hematopoietic transcription factors. Importantly, the study identifies a subset of E2A, PBX1, and RUNCS1 co-targets that could be further explored as a basis for developing therapeutics in this molecular subtype of ALL. In the last segment, we review the report published in Blood entitled Microbe-Derived Short-Chain Fatty Acids Butyrate and Propionate Are Associated with Protection from Chronic GVHD by Kate Markey from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, or MSKCC, and colleagues.
By way of background, the GI tract plays a pivotal role in human health and disease prevention, serving as an interface between its reservoir of microbiota and the adoptive immune system. Preclinical models have demonstrated that certain T-cell subsets are critical for chronic graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD, development, partly due to production of profibrotic cytokines, which have been linked to GI microbiota composition. Mouse studies also suggest that the GI microbiome modulates alloreactivity in acute GVHD, and that these effects are dependent upon microbe-derived metabolites. These preclinical models also show that microbe-derived short-chain fatty acids, such as butyrate, can exert local effects on intestinal epithelia and immune populations in the GI tract, thereby reducing lethal GVHD due to improved repair of intestinal epithelial cells. In the context of allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, or allo-HCT, most studies that have looked at the alteration of the intestinal microbiota and metabolome have primarily focused on early outcomes after transplant, such as acute GVHD. Data are not available at later time points when patients' diets gradually return to normal and chronic GVHD starts to develop. As allo-HCT is accompanied by a decrease in microbial diversity within the GI tract, the authors hypothesized that alteration of the microbiota may be associated with the development of chronic GVHD. This is an important clinical question because chronic GVHD affects 40 to 50% of long-term survivors of allo-HCT and is a leading cause of non-relapse mortality. Markey and colleagues examined the potential relationship of the microbiome with chronic GVHD by analyzing stool and plasma samples collected late after allo-HCT using a case control study design. Patients were matched by graft type and rates of preceding acute GVHD, and early exposure to broad-spectrum antibiotics were similar between both groups. Notably, prior to transplant, samples from cases and controls showed comparable bacterial diversity. In the perienegraftment period, many dysbiotic microbial communities were observed, as exemplified by expansion of particular gut microbiota. In the peri-day 100 window, several patient samples remained dominated in a fashion similar to that seen perienegraftment, while others reverted to a composition that was more similar to their pre-transplant state. However, at all these time points, differences between cases and controls were not significant. Among the MSKCC patients, the authors found lower circulating concentrations of the microbe-derived short-chain fatty acids, propionate, and butyrate in the peri-100-day plasma samples from patients who developed chronic GVHD, compared with those who remained free of this complication in the initial case control cohort of transplanted patients. Similar results were found from a cross-sectional cohort from an independent transplant center. The authors analyzed an additional cross-sectional patient cohort from a third transplant center. However, only serum was available, rather than plasma, and the differences in short-chain fatty acids observed with the plasma samples could not be reproduced in this group. Using the MSKCC patient cohort, the authors generated a logistic regression model to evaluate the relative abundances of certain gut microbiota and the probability of developing chronic GVHD. 
Their predictive model showed that as the abundance of actively fermenting butyrate-producing bacteria, such as Lachnoclostridium, Clostridium, and Faecalibacterium decreased, the probability of chronic GVHD increased, while the converse was true for the bacteria Acromantia and Streptococcus. The author's model performed less accurately using data from the other two centers. This may be due, in part, to different treatment regimens and patient demographics, and lack of similar matching as undertaken in the MSKCC cohort. In summary, this preliminary report sheds new light on changes in gut microbiota and their metabolites, and the association with chronic GVHD. However, as pointed out by Takanori Tashima in the accompanying commentary, the study has several limitations. These include the small number of samples and the fact that most were collected from inpatients, where diet and use of antibiotics and other factors related to prolonged hospitalization can influence microbial diversity. Also, as more than half of the patients had an overlap syndrome of late-onset acute GVHD, these results may not fully reflect classic chronic GVHD. Ultimately, an improved understanding of the association between the gut microbiome and metabolome and chronic GVHD requires larger multi-institutional studies with extended monitoring, ideally until tolerance induction. However, studies that require stool samples, particularly from outpatients, may be challenged by the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.